I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Grayson. Thank you for tuning in again. And if you're new here or maybe even new to this idea we're exploring here on the Uncivilized Podcast of reconciling our often overwhelming, hectic, modern, urban existence, I know I'm definitely feeling it this week, uh, with our innately human need for the natural world, there is perhaps no one more fitting to introduce you to than my guest today, because he and his wife have found a really unique way to bridge these two worlds, the urban and the natural world. So I really can't wait to share this interview with you, which is why I'm not going to blab on and instead just jump right into introducing our guest, who is none other than Eric Knutson, the author of two now legendary books in the urban homesteading movement. Um, the Urban Homestead, which came out a little under a decade ago, as well as his follow-up book, which has been my go-to Bible for all things do-it-yourself, uh, Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. So Eric and his wife, Kelly Coyne, who co-authored both books, they live here in Los Angeles in an awesome east side bungalow where they grow food, raise chickens, keep bees, they homebrew, they ferment all sorts of interesting and really delicious things. Um, I've been following them locally for nearly for nearly a decade now since their first book came out. And now that my family lives in a house, a bungalow-sized house, instead of an apartment with some backyard space, and my daughters are a little bit older. We've been having a lot of fun taking out their books again, which have been on my bookshelves all these years, and starting to tackle some of the bigger projects. Um, not bees yet. We're still working on the worm composter. It was a little bit of a failed project, so I'm going to go back to that chapter and uh, figure out what we did wrong. So... I should really emphasize, you know, you don't need a house to be a homesteader, as you are going to find out in our show today. Eric had some really interesting things to say about how his and Kelly's urban homestead has evolved over the years and how maybe we need to stop and reconsider the myths so many of us have in our minds, I know I do, around this idea of true self-sufficiency. So thanks in advance for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. Eric Knutson is the co-author with his wife, Kelly Coyne, of The Urban Homestead, your guide to self-sufficient living in the heart of the city and making it radical home ec for a post-consumer world. He also writes for magazines including Make, Urban Farm, and Yes. Eric has become increasingly interested in the concept of urban sustainability since moving to Los Angeles in 1998. Since that time, he has converted his 1920 hilltop bungalow set on one twelfth of an acre into a mini farm. And along the way, he has explored and written about the traditional home arts of baking, pickling, bicycling, and brewing. He is also the co-founder with Mark Stambler and Teresa Sitz of the Los Angeles Bread Bakers. Eric, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. And I, uh, you know, I didn't know you were the founder of the Los Angeles Bread Bakers. I, I kind of love that logo you guys have got going. Oh, thanks. We're, we're gluten pushers. Yeah, I know. Right. So for obviously <laughs> the audience who, who can't see right now what I'm talking about, uh, the skull is the loaf of bread and then the bones are the rolling pins. 
Yeah, it's Teresa that came up with that one many years ago now. So it's yeah. been a, it's a meetup group, and it's been um, it's been really wonderful. Actually, it's it's more about community, really. I mean, the bread is an excuse just to get people together, and uh, we've had all kinds of classes. We built a community bread oven. We built com- two community bread ovens, actually, and we've had sort of internationally known. Uh, bakers come to to LA to to do classes, and our thing is kind of sourdough fermented whole grains. That's the emphasis of the group. So, right. it's, it's, I say I'm a gluten pusher, but it's I think a very healthy form of bread. And I think more of us are starting to realize that. I mean, I'm always I've always been in that homemade sourdough camp. My mom actually always baked our bread up until she started freelancing later on when I was a little bit older. But um. Yeah, it's a hot thing in LA right now. I we went to the Hollywood Farmers Market a couple weeks ago, and have you heard about Bub? I think it's Bub and Grandma's bread. Oh no, I don't know them. So they're just like among the many bakers right now in LA doing this slow fermented sourdough uh, bread. And by the time we got there at nine, they were completely sold out. Well, that's one of the reasons we started the group is because actually bread in LA, when we, I kind of, it's been like five or six years now since that group got started and it was pretty bad. There was a lot of bad bread here, surprisingly for such a large city. But now there's, there's a couple of places. There's Lodge in Culver City. There's Seed Bakery in Pasadena. There's a place called Clark Street that's about to open a bakery. And then I guess Chad Robertson is coming down from San Francisco with a big, um, bread operations. So now there's there's lots of, of good breads to be had here. But you should still make it yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, if you that's the, that's my next project. Um so do you do you bake all of your bread yourself? I don't I yeah, yes and no. Um we had a lot of life things go on. Uh Kelly had a my wife had a um aortic dissection in November and my mom passed on. So I had to kind of put the bread baking on hold for the past few months, but I would like to get back into it. But yes, I used to bake all the the bread for our household and I milled the flour too, because that's another thing that I got really into is, um, is a, there's a Como mill, which is a nice German mill. And it, what people don't know here in the U.S. is actually that a lot of uh, the Germans tend to have these things. Not everyone, but it, it's it's a common uh, kitchen device. And milling your own flour really makes a difference. And it gives you access to a lot of different kinds of grain. And so that, that, was, that was an eye-opening thing. And, you know, part of the L.A. Bread Bakers, too, was to, to introduce people to different kinds of grain. Because there's not just... You know, you go to the supermarket and there's flour, period, right? But, um, you know, the first time that I tasted a variety of wheat called Sonora, which is what they used to grow in L.A., was a revelation. It was something the Spanish brought here, actually, for uh, flatbreads, and it has this amazing, amazing flavor. Yeah, can you so, tell me about that? Yeah, what? it, it um, I think it was actually brought to make the communion hosts. And so it, the, the bread was said, or the, 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 the grain was said to have a spirit or a flavor to it. And it, um, it looks almost like white flour when you grind it, but it's a whole grain flour. And it just has this flavor that is unlike the flour at the supermarket. And then there's many, many other varieties of grain that you can get. Some are better for making bread. Some are better for flat breads. So that... You know, I, I think and I hope that that's something that more people will discover. 
the, the actually the engineer behind Como has developed a new kind of mill that's that's less expensive because that's one of the barriers to getting into it is the the mills themselves are about five hundred dollars, but he's got a cheaper one now. So and he's hoping that you know now more people in America are going to figure out how to do this. I mean, people spend a lot of money on blenders, but um, what you don't know is that you can actually mill flour, you can mill corn, you can mill lots of things yourself in your own kitchen. And it's a lot better fresh too, of course. That's the other reason to do it. Yeah. And I, I know for so many people, like this is all really familiar sounding stuff to me. This is stuff I've been getting into as I've been exploring more of this, you know, just returning to the way we used to do things and to do things in a way that isn't like part of our hectic 21st century life. Um, but just can we back up for a second? Because I want to, I would love to hear your story about how you came to this lifestyle to begin with. Well, it's it. I think largely due to my late and dear mom, who was a um, high school or a junior high crafts teacher. So we had a garage full of things like she had a potter's wheel in there and equipment for cutting rocks. And she taught me how to do um, sort of elementary carpentry and things like that. And she really instilled in me a, um, you know, love for doing things with my hands um, and for making things. And that's been with me all my life. And uh, it just kind of went out of control when we wrote the book and the first book, The Urban Homestead, in the late, uh, to, the, the, the late aughts, I guess they're called. But um, I've always loved making things. And um, there's something about it that I think is important. And um, not to say that everyone needs to do everything from scratch, but it's good to have a few skills and manual skills under your belt because it balances out the i think overly abstract digital lives that we tend to lead yeah agreed and i'm so sorry to hear about your mom um i just can you tell me a little bit would you mind telling me a little bit about more like where you grew up and what how you see your life back then versus like you say this increasingly digital world we live in now well, I'm in my 50s, so I can remember when the phone rang and there was no answering machine. And we had yep, me too. And things like <laughs> that, right? So I grew up in Culver City, which is part of West Los Angeles. So it's, um, it, it's part of the, the sprawling LA basin. So um, sort of sur- suburban slash urban area, depending on your frame of mind. And so um, I, I grew up here, went to school at, at UC San Diego for a while, but, um, so I basically spent my whole life in Southern California and now I'm, I'm, I've been back here since 1998 living in, uh, the Echo Park Silver Lake area near downtown LA. And did you have, did you start out because obviously you live this life now where your home is your existence and did you, so did you have a, like a, what would you call a normal life before? Did you have a normal job? Yeah, I, I worked as a video editor for a while, um, but I, you know, I don't like being in dark rooms for, you know, overnight and stuff like long, crazy hours, things like that. Then for a while, I worked for a really interesting organization called the Center for Land Use Interpretation, which is a very hard to define um, art slash you know, investigatory uh, nonprofit. Uh, we looked at the human use of the landscape. And that was really wonderful and got to travel quite a bit with that organization. And then it was just one afternoon, I was kind of thinking about all the, you know, kind of manual skills I was interested in. 
and decided to start a blog. And um, Kelly joined me in that. Kelly, uh, my wife, is all, also, she was trained as a fine artist, so she's used to working with, um, used to manual skills as well, and uh, is equally interested in, in all this kind of stuff, too. And when the blog got going, very quickly after that, a publisher came to us, Process Media, Feral House, and said they wanted a book. It was all just kind of a flurry of unexpected kind of um, call. It kind of all of our interests came together on the blog, and then the book happened, and then the economic crisis happened uh, just after the book came out. And it's in those sorts of times when people get interested in these skills again. So the book did pretty well, and then we did the second book. And that, so that's how we kind of came to being, to writing about this stuff. Although we've always done these kinds of things, even when Kelly and I were living in an apartment together, we would have, you know, a, a pot of tomatoes on the front porch, and we made bread and fermented things. So, And that's an important point I want to make, is you don't need to have a house to do these things. You don't need to do everything. Just, like, pick something you like. Spend some time working with your hands. You don't need a house. In fact, maybe it's good not to have a house, too, because it's a big responsibility and it takes up a lot of space. So you can do this stuff in an apartment as well. Yeah, it, it does take up a lot of time. I, we, live in a, we live in a very classic L.A., one of those little houses, too, and we've got a nice yard. But I find that it just, especially with two little kids, it every project I've kind of taken on, like this summer we had, a, we decided to start our own first little garden. Um, it just takes up way more time than I, I ever imagined. So the idea that you've been able to convert your entire house into a working farm is just unbelievable to, unbelievable to me. I just, I, it's, it's hard to find the time, to be honest, as well, much as I love it. Yeah, I want to clarify that a little bit. Um, and that's partly my bad. Uh, I need to revise our, um, our um, bio a little bit because it says it uses the word farm and i think our publisher might have put it in there and i don't like to say that actually because and in fact in the past two years or so i've begun to pare down the activities that we do and focus on things a little more tightly so you know when we write about things we have to do them uh, we don't write about stuff that we haven't done so I think that's our responsibility as as authors and bloggers is to do stuff and write about it but lately, I've been trying to pare down things a bit. Like, for instance, the vegetable garden. We used to have more space devoted to vegetables, never the whole yard by any means. I don't recommend that people do that, in fact. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's to invite disaster to try to, to, to vegetable garden too much space. So I've reduced our vegetable gardens down to one small 4 by 8 bed that it's by the front door so that I can see it every morning and know what's going on. And I've also decided to focus only on the things that grow really well in L.A. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> the frustration of, for instance, like Brussels sprouts, right? I mean, it's just not a great place to grow Brussels sprouts for whatever reason. They get aphids. They're not happy here. So... I've decided, like, okay, arugula grows great. No problem with that. Lettuces grow great in the wintertime. Tomatoes do okay. You know, basil does okay. And then we have a bunch of fruit trees, too, like pomegranates and peaches and figs and things that grow really well here and don't require a lot of, of effort. But I think, you know, especially with something like vegetables, it's better to have a very small 
carefully tended bed than a bunch of vegetable beds that you're kind of like, oh my God, I got to, you know, deal with the kids and I got work and, you know, it, it's just, it, you, you can get overwhelmed with it. So I, I and the, the point, I think always the point with what we do is not to, to be self-sufficient. I don't like that word uh, actually, because um, I, I think that's a fool's errand. We're, we're in community with each other. And part of that is going to the farmer's market or the market or whatever. And um, I, I think it's a kind of a crazy idea that you can grow all your own food in a, in a small urban lot. Um, also, for in terms of pests, too, actually, we have a lot of native plants, and I think that keeps the pest problems down. So, you know, in short, our yard is mostly native plants, a few fruit trees, and then a small vegetable bed. And for us, that seems to work pretty well in terms of being able to take care of it and in terms of um, pest problems and that sort of thing. Yeah, it sounds, sorry to interrupt you, but it sounds like you've had a little bit of, of a just change in mindset because I, I do remember when I first went to one of your, work, your workshops, you were a huge proponent of turning, you know, that classic LA green lawn into a garden. And so it's interesting to see, it sounds like you've definitely had sort of like this evolution as you've as you've been on this journey. Definitely. And then, you know, I, I still am a proponent of getting rid of the lawn and our climate. I mean, I think that's an opportunity for native plants, for a small vegetable bed, for fruit trees. But uh, a lawn in Southern California doesn't make sense because you have to water it. And it, I don't know, it's just more, more effort than it's worth doing. Well, and what amazes frankly. me is that, that a lot of people, there's been this big movement to take out the lawns, which of course makes sense considering our water usage here in LA. But then they put in, like in my neighborhood, you just see gravel or dirt. Oh yeah. And it seems like it's such a wasted opportunity to not plant something <laughs> that you can use. And uh, I was wondering, you know, how do you, how is it in your neighborhood? Do you have this kind of like mini oasis of people who really have caught onto this idea of of making that land usable? Or do you see what I see in, yeah, in L.A.? I see a lot of gravel and I see a lot of uh, fake turf. And that is, in part, a um, the, the, the lawn rebate program in L.A. was managed very poorly, I must say. Uh, there was a company called Turf Terminators. I don't know if you know this story, but they, oh, I don't know the story, but I remember Turf Terminators. Yeah, it was a company that didn't exist before, and then the rebate came in, and they took on the same economic model as the uh, solar companies, where they'll take the rebate, do the work, and then um, disappear, which is exactly what happened. So they left in their wake tons and tons of these gravel yards and i think that's because there's um there's kind of a a lack of literacy when it comes to gardening in <laughs> in a lot of places it seems like especially here that that you know we don't we're in a mediterranean climate if you look at the palette of, of native plants here you can do quite a nice sort of lush looking garden with native plants with plants that benefit pollinators you, we are not Phoenix here. You don't have to do the gravel and cactus thing. That is not what our, if you go to the hills here, that's not what this place looks like um, naturally. Um, so, and, and the other thing with that was you had politicians here saying, we need to save water, we need to save water. So we had these, I think, short-sighted 
water saving plans in cities. The real, you know, the real problem in California is agriculture. Agriculture sucks up. Can't remember what it is. Like something like eighty percent of the water. The right. It is the. It's the majority. It's the major vast majority. There's another large chunk that's industry. The water use in cities is very very small. If we if we just shut the water off to all the cities, if we could do that, I think it was something like four to five percent at most. Half of that being landscape. So you know, very small percentage, right? So the message was we need to save water. So, I, but I think it was kind of a, a way of not dealing with agriculture. It was a way of saying let's blame it on um, city water use, and it led to these kind of ill planned rebate programs that had unintended consequences. So you have the gravel, you have the the um, lawns, and you have worse, you have thousands of trees here that people did not water. So now they're dead, falling over. It's costing thousands of dollars to deal with that. And we have less of a tree canopy in places where we need a tree canopy in cities. So in short, that's a long rant, but I did not like the way that the the water crisis was managed. It needed to be more carefully thought out. And part of that, I think, is people, some kind of education in terms of uh, some kind of literacy involving plants. You know, I think, unfortunately, to most people, they're just sort of a green background material. And, um, you know, there's a whole world in the garden that's really wonderful. And, uh, you know, of course, I think this probably starts with with children, right? This is this is what we need to instill in uh, young people is an appreciation of nature and appreciation of plants and animals and the natural world. Right. And also that it's in our hands, because I think that's one of the saddest things about what happened in L.A. is that it kind of just took any kind of initiative out of the people's hands of what their city should look like. Whereas, you know, if you people were informed, they could start to make their own decisions and, and implement changes in their own homes instead of just having a big corporation come in and say, oh, this is how we're going to do it. So what I, can you tell me then what what should our homes look like? Can you give us a virtual tour? of your front yard, your backyard, like what, what is, what does your home look like? Yeah, it's a, it's a small uh, bungalow. Sounds like yours built in 1920. So that's, I really am a big appreciator of, um, of the architecture pre 1929 from about 1900 to 1929, I think is the peak of American residential architecture. I really like the bungalow because it's, um, I, I'm not, I actually not big on the tiny house thing. I think that's a little bit of a gimmick. What I like is the small house thing. So this this house Which, is, by the way, that that did not used to be considered a small house. That is what exactly. a family considered right. an appropriately sized house, even for a family of four, or right. most people had more kids then. That's correct. The average house size in 1920, I think when this house was built, was a, about a thousand square feet, which is what this house is. Whereas now I think it's two two times that or more than two times that. So I like the small house. I like that it has a um it we're a little it's a little weird. We're on a hill, so uh we're up above the street, but it, other than that it's a normal bungalow. It has a um porch that you and all the houses on this block have a porch. So you see the neighbors. I like that about it. Uh you you don't like drive into a garage and disappear and somehow right. appear in the house, which is the kind of suburban model. But you you actually, there, there's a kind of forced contact with the neighbors. 
I really like How do like you get that. along with your neighbors, by the way? Fantastic. So there's a there's a neighbor down the street named Jenny Cook. She's a caterer and author and wonderful person. And she she did I I am really, really amazed by this this initiative of hers. Is she she holds a cocktail party every month for the neighbors. And she went up and down the street and put a little piece of paper in everyone's nail mailbox and said, Come to the party. And um, not everyone came, but a lot of people come every month now. And we've really gotten to know each other. And we're already a neighborhood where we know each other. I, of all the places I've ever lived, and I'm not sure exactly why, I think it might be the architecture of the buildings, but people know each other. And that's good. And this built on that. And so now, you know, you can, in neighborhoods, you can kind of have sniping over, oh, so-and-so's parking in front of my house, that kind of thing. That's much less in here because everyone knows each other now. And uh, we've been to each other's houses and we know, you know, we know, we know each other. And that's a really, really good thing. So if people take nothing away from this conversation, I would say, you know, if you're an outgoing person, invite your neighbors over for a party. It really, really changes the neighborhood in a very, very positive way. If more people did that, um, I don't know that that's a real, real uh, powerful thing to do. Yeah, I love that. We've actually, we have a lot of kids in our neighborhood and I've got two young girls. And so I've been on sort of that quest to make this an area where kids can play with each other in the neighborhood like people did when I was growing up, even though I'm from a small town in Connecticut, I'm not from a giant city, but we have this block that is kind of like this idyllic throwback to the past. And that's what's happened in the past few months. And it's so lovely. I mean, the kids are, it's like they're breaking up and down the streets and I've gotten to know my neighbors and it really, it's one of the things that sort of started to change my perspective about living in Los Angeles. I'm going to digress a little bit. I used to be on the Please. board of the Bike Coalition. And one of the things missing, I think, from the movement to make our cities healthier places for kids and for our elders as well, is is young mothers like you who don't have a lot of time or working, I realize that, and taking care of kids. But you're a presence that can really change things at the city level in terms of, you know, yeah, the streets should, your kids should be able to walk to school safely. They aren't right now in most places. Not just, I mean, LA is kind of the poster child for bad, you know, planning. It's getting better, but um, everywhere, mom, you know, the, what, what the moms in, in Holland did in the 70s. And was dads said, too, we should add. Well, just to- <laughs> actually in, in Holland, it was led by the moms who said, you know, stop the child murder. They held signs up like that saying, in other words, we need to change the planning to make our cities for people and for children and not for cars, which is the way that things are done in most places. And it, it was led by, um, by young mothers there, that movement. And it, it wow. changed. Um, uh, the, the results are obvious. They were headed the same way we are. You know, they had town centers where they were basically just parking lots. They had terrible streets where people were speeding. And now, now look at it. If you go there, it's a world of bicycles, right? And people walking around, street cafes, things like that. So, yeah. Anyways, I digress. I'm ranting. No, I, so, I love that. I'll, I'll put a, um, a link to that in the show notes. That's great. Yeah, it's an interesting movement. Anyway, so the back to the house. So it's a bungalow. There's a slope in the front. Um, a lot of things have gone on in our life in the past year. So it's a little rangy right now. It's one of my projects is to kind of uh, get back on 
um, back in the swing of things, get the yard fixed up, get the house fixed up. But um, native plants in the front, pomegranate tree, fig tree, LA, those are great trees, by the way, pomegranate, fig. Oh, we love yep. those. Don't we've been, we've been eating a lot of figs oh, this yeah, summer. Figs. Everyone should have figs if you live in a place where you can have figs. That is, that's amazing. Oh, we steal tree. them from, you know, random uh, <laughs> random yards that aren't using them. I'll admit, <laughs> I'll admit, because we don't have a fig tree. But yeah, figs are the best. Well, exactly. I mean, that, there's another excuse to get to know your neighbors is maybe they have a fruit tree that they're not using, right? So Exactly. Yep. So, uh so there's the fruit trees, there's the small vegetable bed that I look down on from the front porch. The backyard is pretty much the same. There's a large avocado tree that came with the house, which is phenomenal. Um, six months of avocados every other year, is, is, and they're good ones. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, if, if you if that's something to think about. It takes a long time for an avocado tree to, to mature, but um, definitely plan for that if you're getting a new house here. And then there's two beehives in the way back, and then I have four hens too. So, uh, and then there's so two honey cats and, and a dog. eggs. Sorry, so you have honey and eggs then. There is some honey, uh, and but the bees actually are, I keep mostly for pollination. So um, there's a lot more avocados because of the the bees. And I have a little side. I take bees out of people's houses for them too. That's a little side thing I do, but um, so yes. And then where do those bees go? Uh, they go to a friend who has a uh, has them on a farm, or I I always have two hives. So um, I was down a hive this year, and I just took some out of a neighborhood tree and moved them to the backyard. So those are the two beehives I have now. Wow! And so, and how did you how did you get into beekeeping? Because that's of all the um, you know do-it-yourself endeavors. I think it's, it sounds like the most dangerous, at least from a, an urban kind of homestead perspective. So what, when did you make that foray into beekeeping? They do sting, yes. So it was thanks to... I got stung this weekend. It was oh, not really? fun. Just oh, a, yeah. a random, un, un, um, just a random sting, huh? You know, it was so weird. Yeah, I was at the farmer's market and I literally had just parked my bike. I was with my kids and was standing there. And then I would look down at my foot and was like, what just happened? And I had gotten stung on the foot. Oh, you stepped on one. I don't think so. It was my the side of my foot. Oh, really? Wow, that's weird. It's weird. Mm. There have been a lot of, that's a whole other conversation, but there have been a lot of unprovoked stings. At least I've been hearing about this summer. I don't know if mm. you have. I like, to, like, I like to blame it on wasps, but you know. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, my daughter did run through a yellow jacket nest. So ouch. That, ouch. <laughs> yeah, I know. It usually, it usually is wasps. And I think people often are like, <laughs> they just think everything's a bee and they blame it on the bees. This is true. The bees do sting, but um, usually not unprovoked. So, uh, but that's, so that's a little unusual. Anyways, um, where were we? Oh, yes. The, the um, bees. The beekeeping. Yes. Beekeeping is thanks to a, an amazing man named Kirk Anderson, who used to be part of a group called the Backwards backwards beekeepers um and kirk is an amazing resource if you're in la he's a he's a natural beekeeper meaning he's he doesn't intervene so much in the beekeeping as the commercial guys do this is a whole long um another whole long rant but um uh, i'm big on the natural beekeeping uh, as is kirk and he taught a bunch of us how to how to take uh, swarms and how to take them out of walls and then how to um keep them without treating them and 
so forth. So that's where I got into that. And actually, of all the activities, that's the one that's probably my favorite. And I will never pare that one down. Let me put it that way. I don't make jam so much anymore because of the sugar, but every once in a while I do. But the beekeeping is my favorite. And uh, it's because it's just um, it's such a, um, a privilege to view this incredibly complex organism firsthand and uh, very inspiring and very interesting and always challenging. You never know what's going to happen and what you, the decisions you're going to need to make. Um, and uh, it's, I highly recommend it. And actually, it's, uh, strangely enough, of all these activities, it's the one that requires the least amount of labor, particularly with the natural beekeeping style that uh, we do. Um, because the bees, they take care of themselves. They don't, um, I don't have to feed them. Um, I just have to make sure they have enough room in their boxes. And that's kind of pretty much it. Uh, so highly recommended. So it's, it sounds really exciting. And, you know, I think beekeeping falls sort of in the realm of what I would call like the hunting and gathering, um, aspect of this lifestyle. And I'm just wondering, cause you, I know you grow so much. Is there anything like, are you foragers too? Everyone's, is there anything else yeah, you do along those lines? We used to do that uh, more like um, I was because, and again, all this stuff has happened. I used to go hiking more often and we would we would occasionally forage things. Um, but I defer to Pascal Valder and Mia. I don't know if you know them. You should. Have I them do on know the them. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we'll get one of them on the show yeah, later in the season. I just have I just kind of defer the. Um, the expertise in foraging to those two because they they do it so well. But yes, you know, occasionally we'll, we'll forage up. And actually the yard itself uh, yields um, edible weeds and things like that too. And Kelly's more the herbalist, so she knows that stuff a lot better than I do, but she's, she's on top of that as well. But, you know, again, uh, often just from the backyard, frankly, because stuff just pops up and grows and you can use it. You can eat the weeds, right? Yeah, I, I've sort of been venturing into that world, and it's amazing how much there there is to eat. We were, we're big on wild radishes. Oh yeah, lately yeah. they seem to be popping up along our bike path. So oh, there you go. But they, you know, they only really take up such a tiny percentage of the diet, and I'm just wondering. So could you talk to me a little bit about like what percentage? I know you said you don't like this idea of self sufficiency, right? Yeah, because it's it's important that, that we live in a community and we're part of a community and we as humans are communal organisms. But, you know, how much of what you produce, what percentage would you say? It's a um, very small percentage. I've never weighed it. I should like someday do that. But it's really only I try to focus with the garden on things that are crappy at the market. So, like, I don't like buying lettuce so much. I mean, at this time of year, you have to because, you know, you can't really, it's hard to grow in the summer, at least in my yard. But um, in the winter, I grow lettuce because fresh lettuce is much better from the garden. Fresh arugula is much better from the garden. So um, I just focus on the stuff that um, is is bad at the market. And then also for years, I've just grown, um, there's an Italian seed company called Frankie. And they have a lot of varieties of things like chicories and stuff like that. You just can't get even at the highest end market here. So that's the other stuff we'll grow. There's artichoke too. That's another that's another good one because that's a beautiful landscape plant, but it also makes a, an edible um, edible part. So that's a that's a good example. 
Yeah, they are beautiful. My neighbor actually grows them, but she doesn't eat them. And I saw these amazing artichokes. She's a landscape designer. She just loves how they look. They're they're pretty when they bloom too, and the bees like them. So, but yes, you have to kind of stay on top of it. Just like the figs, they all just like suddenly there's a thousand figs and you have to, you know, be on it, right? But in our with our busy lives, it's not always possible. That happens to us too, and we don't even have kids. So, um, but so sometimes you miss it. You know, there's a nature gives you that short window for some of these things, and you just have to jump on it and I don't know, cook artichoke for a week and <laughs> whatever. Right, and be be comfortable with eating artichokes a lot. Exactly, and, a lot. Yeah. Oh, what's for dinner tonight? Hmm, more artichokes or worse, more zucchini. Right, I've done right. that. Uh, you know. Oh, you're not a zucchini fan. I am actually, I am a zucchini fan. Kelly gets a little tired of it, but um, that's, of course, the infamous uh, summer zucchini problem that everyone has. But um, yeah, I know a lot of zucchini muffins, zucchini bread. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I know. Well, so how so how do you balance it all? And and this is a another whole question. So I'm asking you two at once. But so and why why do what you do in the middle of Los Angeles? Because for me, Los Angeles is such a hectic place. So you know. How tell me about how you how you manage the fact that you're a very busy writer and speaker and and podcast host and all of these things and also you know run your homestead at the same time. Well, you know, part of it lately has been again. I said I've pared down, so I'm trying to look at the what are the things that I do well or what are the things that are useful, and I'm focusing on on those things. Oddly enough, you know, in an old house. Uh, I have to do a fair amount of carpentry and woodworking. So I'm sort of focusing on that right now and training myself and taking classes to try to improve my skills so that I can can better take care of this house. That's an example of that. And then, like I said, the bees, I'm always going to have them because they pollinate things. They are a service for the neighborhood in terms of pollination as well. And then, I, I like I said, I do take them out of walls for people as a service for, for folks. So that I'm going to stick with, but certain things, you know, like the beer making, mm, um, I ruined a bunch of batches. I always, my beer was never, it was okay, but it wasn't great. So it's like, I don't need, I can let go of that one, you know? So, um, Oh, I'm disappointed to hear that. I remember your talk about 10 years ago telling, I kind of, did you have an incident where all your beer exploded? Yes, I had. Does that, was that? (laughs) That was a, that was, uh, yes, that was, that was uh, um, one of the reasons I quit. Now, of course, for someone who's in an apartment, maybe that's a good one to do or has a small house and you got access to a garage. Maybe beer making would be the thing, you know, because it, you know, it's, it, uh, it, it's something you can do inside, right? You don't have to have a yard to do that. So especially if beer is your passion. Yeah, well, exactly. uh, you know what? Beer is one of my passions, but I just feel like there's so many amazing brewers now in LA. It's much different than when I moved here 12 years ago. That there's that. Exactly. Right. I can kind of just go with my growler now to mm-hmm. a lot of great breweries. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so I don't know and, how you feel. Has, has that yeah. been kind of fueling yeah, your that, reason? That's another reason. You can buy good stuff. And then also like I'm over 50 now. Do I need five gallons of beer sitting around? You know? <laughs> not going to fit in my fencing uniform anymore so i don't want that to happen so um you know yeah anyways right so so you were talking about how how do you balance your life in la then because it seems like this this has been an evolution you're paring stuff down you're focusing on the things that you really care about um 
So tell me, I mean, tell me how your life is structured in LA. Like, how do you balance the social media with yeah. what oh, you're doing boy. at home? And yeah, you know, increasingly, I've been I've been getting really frustrated with digital media. To be honest with you, um, you know, I <laughs> I saw that the movie Dunkirk recently, which um, I felt kind of it felt kind of soulless to me. It wasn't great as a movie, but um, what I enjoyed about it was like everything's manual in there. <laughs> you crank something and wheels come down. And <laughs> it was like, I was really kind of pining for my childhood where there were things like dial phones and table saws and stuff like that, that, um, that I really enjoy working with. And I realized I don't, why am I ceding all this time to these tech bros in, in, in Silicon Valley who are profiting off of our distraction and off of the irrelevance of, of just battling back and forth in Facebook. I, like, so I, I have this thought of like, well, you know, but it is essential. Like you and I both are, uh, we, we put out stuff um, and dig- we do podcasts, we write things. So part of our life is digital, but I thought like, could I balance it? Could I work in the, in the morning on the things that I have to do, which a lot of which is sitting in front of a computer and then spend the rest of the day, like cut it off, just not, you know, work on, work on the garden, work building some furniture or work on the house, something that's a a manual skill in, in balancing that. Now I work at home, so I have the luxury of this. So, um, but uh, people who have a nine to five job, maybe, maybe some of these activities in the evening and just shut off the social media might be a, um, shut off the phone, whatever might be a, a possible, I got not easy to do. I realize at all, but maybe we need to start thinking about this. So is that what you're doing is yeah. you're working in the morning and then to. you shut it off? I'm trying to, but the, you know, the business model behind these devices is to get us addicted to them. Right. So it, it's not easy to put the phone down and do something with your hands. Right, right. And one and one of the things I've been thinking about too is I don't even know how to put this into words, but you know, it's allowed us to kind of become consumers, not kind of. It has allowed us to become consumers of things around the clock because we always have these mm-hmm. devices in our hands. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a it's an advertising vehicle. Yeah. And so it's enabled us to also consume media, consume more products that are advertised to us in a way unprecedented before all these technologies were created. And so I've been having the same thoughts too. Like, well, okay, yes, it, it's wonderful because I've been able to connect with people like you or mm-hmm. people who live in faraway mm-hmm. places and form these beer and bread communities all over the world. But I mean, who's it really serving? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit scary when you start to think about it. And it's, I've actually been on social media hiatus for mm. since May. Um, really? How- I don't know how you feel about that, but it's, I kind of think, I've never been a huge fan of social media to begin with. Sorry, I hate to say that because I know a lot of people listening to this probably are. Um, but it still was hard to go on hiatus. But after the initial two weeks, I, I kind of don't want to go back. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, same here. I took it off my phone, Facebook, that is, and I don't miss it, you know. Um, but and yet we're both authors, right? And we're both told that this is something we have to do. So it's not an easy one, you know, for us to, because we have to get our stuff out there so people will see it. And yet, yeah, it's a time suck. It's addictive. 
Um, and it's addictive again because there's people making money off of its addiction. So I, I don't like the the our phones are distracting our brain stories. I don't think that's it. I think it's that there are people profiting from us uh, using our phones and, like you say, uh, not producing things but consuming things. And this is an right. it's just an it's an acceleration of what started in the 19th century, but has gotten even worse right now. Right. And, and, and it's exponentially yep. accelerating exactly. so that it, I can't, then that's part of what scares me is that the, we still remember what life was like before all of this. Right. You know, I remember when my mom had the phone with the long giant squiggly cord that like wrapped around the whole house from the kitchen. And I, I remember what it was like when someone just couldn't reach you. And like, if you missed a meetup or you missed a play date, like you had to find the person on foot and but no one remembers that world anymore other than our generation and, you know, the generations before. And so how do you feel about the future? Because I've, I've sort of been having a pessimistic, <laughs> <laughs> a pessimistic summer. Yeah, um, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I am, I'm always hopeful. I, you know, I, I don't want to fall into despair. So I always, you know, there's, there's hope. It's definitely an interesting and challenging time right now and so i don't know um i don't know what the next few years holds but i think that uh to fall into pessimism is also a mistake because i think it's our obligation to try to make the world a better place as best we can and um certainly uh uh i was looking a little bit at your work which you know turn you wrote a book on breastfeeding and things like that right so that's i did really... it's actually it's like a cultural history yeah, of breastfeeding that's, that's... and i actually meant to talk to you about that because i know so much fascinating historical research goes into your your work and how you've lived your lives so yeah that's a i'm fascinated by basically anything that came before the time period we're living now but if you had no hope for the future you wouldn't have written that book right i mean that's that's a, oh no right, of exactly. course and so... i say that I say that kiddingly. I, I, of course, have hope for the future. I work, or I wouldn't do what I do, and I, I suspect it's probably the same for you. Right, exactly. But and I know what I know where you're coming from because obviously things like climate change, like the political climate in this country right now, we don't even mention you know who, but um, it's a scary time, no doubt about it. Uh, no way to put a cherry on that one. So, no, there's there's not. So, I mean, is there a doomsday element to what you do? I know there's definitely a preparedness tab on yeah, on your blog. There is a preparedness tag on on there, but I'm not. Yeah, not not of the Unabomber type. More of the we could have an earthquake type of, of preparedness here. Which um, actually, since you say it, that's another thing that uh, we need to review here, because that's something you know everyone should review periodically, and we're way behind on that one. I think that uh, we need to look at our emergency supplies here but i'm not yeah i'm not um uh what's the word teleological i don't think there's yeah i don't i don't I, i'm suspicious of anyone who has a doomsday mentality i think it's um hiding some other agenda usually it's the uh we're the select smart few who are going to survive you know the uh, armageddon so there there's both um a theological and a secular version of, of that um, kind of thinking. And I, I am not a fan of, of either. So um, you're so right. Cause of course no one hopes for a doomsday scenario unless they think that they will be the survivors. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's definitely an arrogance to that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, but people should have stuff in case of an earthquake or in case of flooding. Obviously, in Houston, we're seeing that right now. Yeah, so yeah, I know it's it's so horrible, and and you're right. I think I think having that knowledge too is empowering because it just makes you feel like you're not reliant on this system. How do you feel about it? Yes and no. I mean, um, yes, you should have your own supplies, but but I think it actually is that the the community. Um, cocktail party that our neighbor Jenny does is more important than um, having your own earthquake supplies. I think it's the, the community resilience part of it is, uh, is the, it should be our first priority. And then second priority is yes, have some canned goods. Um, it, the power, I don't know about your place here. The power goes out periodically and actually can go out for a long time. <laughs> I'm not sure why. So, really? Uh, yeah, it, it happens. Uh, so it's always good to have, uh, things like a box of mac and cheese on the, you know, because you can't open the refrigerator, stuff like that, you know, I, I think is is a smart plan for. Uh, so that when we talk about preparedness, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Yeah, c- community and, and box macaroni <laughs> and cheese. Exactly, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, no, I think it's so important. And I love that vision because I the reality is we do live in urban Los Angeles. And for those of us who are here, it, I mean, the community is what it's all about. Otherwise, we would be living, you know, in the middle of the woods somewhere exactly. with all of these skills. Yeah, I love living in a big city. I just love it because there's so much going on. There's things to do. There's people from all around the world. There's just unexpected stuff here all the time. That's why I'm, I'm nothing wrong with living in the country, but it wouldn't be for me personally. Yeah. Well, I love the blend that you've achieved. And uh, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. Can you tell our listeners what you're up to next, where they can follow you? Sure, you I know can. maybe sporadically yes. now on social media. Well, no, I, uh, thanks, Jennifer, by the way. So uh, yes, uh, you can read our blog at rootsimple.com. And the podcast is there too. It comes out every other Wednesday and it's available on the blog at Root Simple, but it's also in the iTunes store and on Stitcher. And let's see, I don't, what else are we doing? Yes, the Los Angeles Bread Bakers is available through meetup.com. If you just go to meetup and look for Los Angeles Bread Bakers, you'll find that. And um, let's see, I think that's, I think that's kind of it. I'm probably going to be writing a, a new book soon. Not sure on what topic, but... Um, that's what I know. was going to ask you next. So you are thinking about another book. I am thinking about another book. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you'll come back on the podcast when when you're uh, closer <laughs> to, to writing that book. I, yes, I'd be honored. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show and Eric's interview. And if you did, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating on iTunes. And also be sure to check out the Uncivilized page on my website, jennifergrayson.com, where there will be extra links from the show and more fun and interesting things about Eric and his life here in Los Angeles. And I would also love to hear your thoughts about the show so far, or even your suggestions for guests over on my Instagram page. That's at jennifergrayson1. And if you're interested in the next episode of the Uncivilized Podcast, episode three is actually already up on iTunes if you're ready to jump into the next one. And after that, I will be back every Monday with a new episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.